0: Where do libraries come from? We have an answer, and it may surprise you. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Of course, libraries come from a lot of places. But some, like the one that produces this podcast begin in a very specific place. In fact, you might say in cases like ours, a library begins in the heart of one or maybe two people. For us, it was Henry and Emily Folger who loved Shakespeare, loved old books, and had the means to pursue what they loved. And Mr. and Mrs. Folger are not alone. There are plenty of avid book buyers out there each with his or her own individual passion. Catering to the passions of those book buyers is a legion of booksellers who make their livelihoods pouring through collections of books and ephemera and bringing those items to people who want them. A new documentary is out, executive produced by Parker Posey, that celebrates this world. It's called The Booksellers and it's directed by filmmaker D.W. Young. The film takes a microscopic look at the New York book-buying world in all its depth, breadth, history, and quirkiness. We got D.W. Young in front of a microphone recently to tell us more in a podcast that we call I Loved My Books. D.W. Young is interviewed by Barbara Bogave.
1: Because of COVID, I've been digging deep into my Netflix backlist of TV shows, and I've dipped into this TV series, I don't know if you know it, called You. Uh, It's a thriller that stars Penn Badgley as the owner of a bookstore. And he is, of course, he's Penn Badgley, so he's young and he's hot, but he's incredibly well-read, and he's a sociopath. Uh, Have you seen it, by the way?
2: I have not. I I vaguely have heard about it.
1: Well, I thought of you because, uh, you know, I'm watching this. I'm thinking, what bookseller has ever looked like Penn Badgley? I mean, no offense to your subjects. Uh, But Hollywood and the movies in general, it, it seems like they just love to depict sexy Booksellers, And you have a clip like that in your film. It's from The Big Sleep, where an erudite and erotic book clerk is talking with Humphrey Bogart.
3: Would you happen to have a Ben-Hur 1863 edition with a duplicated
1: line on page 116? What is that
2: about? Well, you know, I think there's like two images, maybe. We showed a clip from the movie Unfaithful.
4: Pardon the mess.
1: You a writer?
2: I'm a book dealer. And there's a ridiculously attractive French bookseller the French in it. French
1: guy. Oh her. my, God. OMG, yes.
2: Yeah, and he's kind of off the charts. And I think there's also this stuffier traditional English model, perhaps, with the tweed jacket and the patched elbows. and
1: Yeah, but that's idealized, too. I mean, I think it's just interesting. It's so romanticized, this idea. I mean, is that what attracted you to this subject?
2: I don't think that was the primary motivation, but I think we certainly wanted to set it straight, maybe, and give people their due and represent that they're more than just the stereotype, certainly.
3: What rare book dealers really do is inculcate neophytes into the wonder of the object of the book. So the rare book dealers are transmitting the ability to learn how to appreciate the books.
1: A lot of the people in your movie get into the bookstore trade because they are are born into it. Um, It seems like there are many roads to this path, but two of them are Either they make a really remarkable, dramatic find and they build from that, or they're born into it.
2: I don't know that I'd say that that many in the U.S. are born into it. A few, but I think in England, that seems to be more common. But, you know, a lot of the dealers in the end came have come to their role in the rare book trade, it seems like, through these their own unique path. And I think that's kind of what's interesting, is that there is no formal education for becoming a rare book dealer, right? Or even a book dealer, for that matter. Um, there's no university degree you can get. There may be some apprenticeship models, but I don't even know that these days they're as uh, clear-cut as maybe they once were. So I think people, it's something you sort of, people have to find their way to, which I like very much.
1: I was just starting out, you know, at my parents' home, I working in the basement. There are some really dramatic finds and they, it seems like every career has at least one. And I remember I went to an estate in Greenwich, Connecticut and I was number one online. And I walked into the room and there on the shelf, the beautiful set of Balzac works, like 40 volumes. And it was like maybe $200 for the set. And I ran up, I said, these are mine, these are mine. Nobody touched, these are mine. It was a fine, I never forget that, never. It was. That's how it all started. Funny enough.
2: Well, I th- yes, that's Bibi Muhammad, and that was, I think, like a real defining moment where it kind of launched her career in a fundamental way. And I talked to others who, various others, who all in their way, often had these moments where everything changed. I think for them, and it maybe was it elevated them to another level.
1: Well, indulge me just for a moment, please, in the romantic side of the business, or maybe just let's do some myth busting. Maybe I'm all wrong about this because I collect. Um, medical history. And I love holding the books and seeing the illustrations. But I love the hunt. So is that what a lot of the booksellers that you talk to for the film, is that what attracted them? And do they have these fabulous stories of hunting down these books that involve actual travel? Or is it at this point, is it really about, you know, looking it up on the internet?
4: Collecting is about the hunt. It's not about the object. You look for 20 years, and then you find it and you put it on the shelf and never look at it again. I think it really, in
2: many ways, marks the generational divide and a sense of why I think the internet marks the end of an era. That physical act of traveling, of hunting, of of digging has been greatly reduced because of the internet. For a lot of people who really made those kinds of finds, um, established their businesses very much that way, you know, there's a sadness to that, there's a loss. The
3: business tragically
0: changed with the rise of the computer. All of a sudden, all those
2: 50, 75, 100, 125 dollar books became 20 or 25 or 30 dollar books, and there were a lot of copies of those books.
4: Basically, in the last 10 years, every piece of shit that's been laying around somewhere is suddenly out on the internet. So there's been this incredible upwelling of stuff, be it books or Beanie Babies or whatever it is
0: it's become ruined by the internet. It's great for collectors that the internet exists. They find books that they spent decades trying to find unsuccessfully in the past at the touch of a key. But to be a surviving used bookseller really is mostly what I'm talking about, is almost impossible.
2: It is a little less romantic than going cross country in your car and stopping at every little country auction or whatever and stumbling across great things or digging through boxes of books and making a great find.
1: Well, The Folger was made possible by two ardent book buyers, you know, passionate book buyers like the people you feature in the film. And you do delve into this idea of the benefit to society that book buying can have. Why don't you give us some examples of this, of of one person's passion translating into a, a larger win for the public?
2: So I think in terms of, from my understanding... Um the best material, the important stuff at the end of the day, most people in this world feel like it should end up eventually in an institution for where it's accessible to the public and academics and people to study and in terms of what constitutes a great find, in many cases now I think it's about realizing something has an interest or a value that was previously unrecognized or underappreciated so there's a lot going on um, with reevaluation of the, the relevance of various historical material from different kind of writers, maybe um, writers who've been undervalued or underrepresented. I think, you know, a great example in the film would be Caroline Schimmel's collection.
4: I noticed that there were no women. It was the, the history of women didn't happen, that they were just sort of there on the side knitting or something like that.
2: Um, which is one of the foremost collections of Writing by women about you know women pioneering and exploring America.
4: It was just a great chasm. I, I thought it was just a little narrow gully, but it was a chasm into which I jumped and uh, started collecting. And I had to educate the dealers. I had to educate the librarians as to what I was looking for. And most of the dealers were men, and I would say, "Show me where your women are," and they go, "We don't have any." And I would come back with the stack, and they go, "Ah." OK, so now we know.
2: And she, by providing greater context, elevated that understanding. So It's
4: almost 25,000 items. But that also includes art, photography, all sorts of tchotchke. I mean, if you're going to have a collection and you intend to exhibit it, having a whole bunch of books open at the title page is really boring. So you need things like Annie Oakley's gloves.
3: Caroline has got an eye for the quirky, but also for the historically important. And she's built up a fantastic network of people who can help her realize what will be her defining role in life, which will be to have the greatest collection of American women, writers, and history makers that there is.
4: I feel I have a responsibility to form this collection.
2: If you look at, in the same way, in a very modern sense, Sarita Gates, who's interested in archiving and preserving a lot of writing about hip hop from the 80s and 90s. Hip
5: hop, people didn't think it was gonna last, let alone us being 40 years in, 45 years in, like archiving and preserving it.
3: Right, archiving and preserving it, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly.
2: She's probably discovering a lot of her material through more modern means via the internet, eBay, connecting with people online, so maybe it's not in that old fashioned sense, but I think it's or it's it's she's striving to help reassess how we look at hip hop culturally and its cultural significance and so assembling, you know, really again a, a larger I contextual means of doing online.
5: that. Like a lot of the work Double XL, Vibe magazine, The Source happened in like the nineties and none of that stuff is digitized. So that led me to collecting their work because I wanted to read. Kevin Powell's Tupac story, or I wanted to read Greg Tate in the Village Voice and all of these writers. And the only way I could do that is if I literally bought the magazine. Everything that I do is always gonna be around archiving and preserving, like thinking about what new content can be created so that the generations that were born when Biggie Smalls died now has like context around why he was important, why he was the king of New York, et
2: I think also, you know, so we felt it was important to represent as part of the food chain of the book world and also the role that institutions and libraries play in, in all of this, that we le- and at least represent one institution. So we thought the Schomburg Center would be a great place to do it. At the Schomburg, in terms of rarities, we have everything from Malcolm X's papers to Lorraine Hansberry's and James Baldwin's papers. And And Kevin Young, who's the director of the Schaumburg, uh, gave us a really fantastic interview. What's really interesting is the way that collectors shape collections that end up at archives.
1: Well, switching gears for, for a moment, some of the characters in this film are, they're just totally characters. For instance, Jim Cummins is a bookseller that when we first meet him, he's standing in an aisle in his warehouse with ten thousand books of poetry.
2: So this whole section, from ten shelves in each section, there are eight or nine sections here. So you got a lot of poetry. I mean, there's everything you can ever imagine in that warehouse, basically. That's that's been published as a book. I think he has, I don't know, thousands of Edward Gorey titles, for example, just. So if you want anything by Edward Gore, you could find numerous copies. So um, it's an incredibly
1: right because he has hundreds of thousands of books in this huge, huge, huge space.
2: And we have about three hundred thousand books in three different units, from valuable books
4: to twenty-dollar books.
2: Jim claims and he knows pretty much where everything wealth. is. I think That's he's probably exaggerating wealth. a little bit, but I think he probably knows where an incredible amount of the material is, and. Like many, I think, of the best book dealers, and this is often cited as one of the, the key attributes of a great book dealer, and is having a great memory. And I think Jim has an amazing memory for what books he has and, and where they are, and um, it's very impressive. This is all bindings here. And here's an unusual title. Amish Love. So, no pictures though. Oh, I guess there are pictures. Oh, yes, there are pictures. Wow.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. And and then there's Jay Walker, who, he seems to have a kind of museum in his house.
3: The English has no word for what room I have is, but the Germans have an excellent word for it. It's a wunderkammer, which is a cabinet of wonders.
2: He's very consciously tried to create something that has some of the the aspects of a museum or a great library, you know, that you could access. My library is unique in a variety of ways. It's generally one considered one of the great private libraries of the world. And he's got, I think, a fairly open-ended criteria for what fits in the library, which is probably great because it lets him pursue a lot of stuff based on his interests. And it's, you know, the library of the human imagination.
3: The books are organized randomly by height. So you create the connections in the library as opposed to me saying here's the section on naval warfare and here's the section on flowers. We don't do that
2: around here. That sounds a little crazy maybe at face value, but he's obviously trying to create a different kind of experience for how you, you discover books in a museum like that and it's not
3: so formulaic. And then it's also unique in that it's a purpose-built space that's about the subject. So the subject is imagination, the library is designed as an homage to Escher. And, you know, he's obviously got treasures
2: galore there, and we had very little time to film when we were there, so I barely got to look at anything.
1: Treasures like what, though? What did you see?
3: Well, we got to see the, the jeweled bindings, of course. These are jeweled bindings. In the history of the book, these are the most beautiful bindings and each copy of a jeweled binding, you would take a book to Sangorsky and Sutcliffe, and they would encase it in 24-karat gold. They would put rubies and different s- gems all around the book, and you would then open the book between the gold. Uh, beyond
2: the, the, the books themselves, a lot of amazing ephemera. I think he has one of the two pairs of uh, the original ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. Um, one of the most important things he has, I believe, is It's not the original Declaration of Independence, but it's this first set of copies of the Declaration of Independence. So these are extraordinarily important and valuable items. That one comes to mind.
1: Uh, You led me to my next character in your film, which is Michael Zinnman. My
0: wife said, uh, I realize I'm not first in your life. Your books are. Where do I stand? I paused for about 20 seconds,
1: counting. Sixth. Anyway, and that was not the thing to say. He, I'm not sure you know, what he specializes system. in. What, what is his angle? Well, Michael is
2: primarily a collector, but I think he considers himself also a bit of a trader.
0: I bought a lot of defective books, or what people considered defective, and uh, that's a moving target. What was defective then is not defective today.
2: So, as he mentions in the film, one thing he's known to have done very um, astutely is to acquire a lot of books that, at the time he was buying them, were considered damaged. He once bought out the entire basement of one of the major London firms, all their damaged books. But later on, because people understood that actually that evidence that was in those books, that historical record, didn't really exist elsewhere in a a similar form, they suddenly became much more interesting and much more collectible and, of course, much more valuable. And that tied into, I think, one of our central themes, which is the sort of value that dealers and collectors can bring to our understanding of history and to sort of academic research and study, and that's the work he did with the late Bill Reese on what they called their critical mess theory. Michael and I dubbed this the critical mess theory, that by building a big enough pile of the stuff and then looking at it, seeing what kind of connections and patterns we found, we would come up with more reliable historical thesis than if we set out with some notion of what we were going to prove and went to find the material to prove it. I think they did some Cotton Mather stuff. They did that with um, The Federalist.
0: And at some point, I started comparing what I had, and you learn from what you have.
2: They would buy as many copies of a given text as they could find, and then once they had all those copies together, they would compare the differences, and they would find out whether there were different printings, who bought them, because maybe enough of them had information about the original owners, And they could assemble, you know, a different kind of record of that moment in history through this accumulation of texts.
0: I don't know why I collect, and I seem to be at the extreme end of the uh,
1: bell curve. Well, the writer Fran Lebowitz shows up throughout your movie as a surrogate, I guess, for book lovers and book collectors. They were like all little dusty
5: Jewish men who were very irritated if you wanted to buy a book. They were covered in dust. Their hands were yellow from nicotine. They always had glasses, of course, because they've been reading in the dark since they were, you know, six years old. And if you would like go up to them and ask very politely, "How much is this book?" Half the time they wouldn't even look up. So, I given
1: that speak. there are a lot of booksellers like that, I am curious who you didn't get a chance to talk to.
2: In, in truth, no one, really, no one turned us down that we asked to speak with. But I think you're absolutely right. It's not a group of people that one thinks of when you think of. Extroverts. Um, I think also, you know, perhaps we, we turn towards people who we felt would be more comfortable speaking, of course, too. And if maybe there were a few people out there who were at the extreme end of introversion and discomfort being on camera you know, they may not have been the ideal subjects. But in general, um, I think rare book dealers, you know, one part of that is they just have a great passion for what they do. And same with the collectors. And they don't always get to talk about it with everyone because it's so specialized. So they get to talk about it with each other. But I also think that they're very happy to have someone interested in, in a chance to speak more freely about what they do.
1: Do you collect rare books?
2: I don't. But in making the film, you see so much amazing stuff. The concept of suddenly collecting takes on a different appeal, perhaps. I think if I, we're not as busy as I am with other things. It would be tempting to go down that
0: path.
1: Well, yeah, and I want to dig into that for a moment because there is this difference between appreciating the books for the content, obviously, and then wanting to have them and touch them, which is really compelling. I mean, when you stand, I for instance, in the Folger, you stand in front of um, – A book that has been touched by a Queen Elizabeth or something that Abraham Lincoln's hands have touched. It's magical. So doing this film, what insight did you get into what compels people to value the physical, material object of the book? We're just talking about the smell of old books. And kind of the magic that is in you know some of these like beautiful
2: editions. To return to the Schomburg when Kevin was showing us some material from the James Baldwin archive, stuff that Baldwin had handled personally, it was notes, it was little bits and pieces of Baldwin's life, but also his creative process. Suddenly, just you know, right there in front of you, that's very powerful. It's you feel like you're connected to him in a in a unique way. And Justin Schiller, he didn't um, he's in the film, and he didn't mention this in his interview, but I've talked to him since has a wonderful story about this he had for many years Lewis Carroll's personal edition of Alice in Wonderland and he finally decided to sell it and but when he did he said you know it's still with me now he said in having had it I'm not gonna I'm paraphrasing a little bit but you know this feeling that the you spent this time with the book and you'll always have a piece of it with you I think that's a very profound concept that you've got something in you that traces back to Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland in their very nascent form. like
5: hmm.
1: The other thing that I think is fascinating about a lot of these books is that you can find artifacts from other times that anthropologists, archaeologists look at like a butterfly wing from this hundreds really of years about. ago. They actually
4: mounted a couple examples of actual mammoth hair into the back of the album. So that's real mammoth hair from, you know, probably 15,000 years ago.
2: Dust bunnies is another thing they can examine I know about. Um, yeah, that's a topic unto itself. And it is, there is an interesting aspect of the cutting-edge science and scientific analysis that has come into play a bit in the book world that's quite fascinating.
1: The forensics. Yeah. yeah. So we've been talking about the past. What's the future of books and the future of book selling?
2: Well, during the pandemic, who knows what the future is of anything? But I think for the rare book world, the concern is not so much it's not like books are going to disappear entirely, and or the people are going to absolutely stop reading. I think it's more a concern that there is going to be a contraction, and their ability to be the, the kind of viable industry that they are now might be reduced to the point where, you know, a much more limited number of people can engage. So I, I hope that that's not the case. If you look at some of the stuff that the younger dealers are doing and the different kinds of material they're representing and um, kind of what might be considered a rare book is changing a little too. I think there's room for optimism. But of course, you know, I think, you know, the fact that people are still reading physical books to a great degree uh, is heartening.
1: What was the most extraordinary book you came across in the process of making the film? And did you come across any Shakespeare?
2: Uh Shakespeare, we, the only Shakespeare we really noted was there was a third folio being sold by Cummins. But we do have a little bit of Shakespeare tie-in in in that our producer, Dan Wexler, who is also a well-known rare book dealer in New York, has a, he and his partner, George Koppelman, have a very fascinating Elizabethan dictionary that has been at the Folger on loan for the last few years. And we would actually have done a little recording of that storyline and have, as a separate project. So that's a little Shakespeare outside this movie, but is of, perhaps might be of interest to Folger folk. That was the only Shakespeare. I mean, the thing with Shakespeare is a lot of the, the best stuff, of course, is at the Folger or <laughs> in the UK. Um, that
1: is really wonderful. And you've teased something that makes me think we might be talking to you again on the podcast. I hope so. Uh, one day. <laughs> um, well, I'll just say uh, thank you so much. I can't wait to uh, see what comes of the film that has the Folger connection. And I hope to see you again on the on the podcaster, hear your voice in my ears.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. D.W. Young's films have screened at festivals around the world, including the New York Film Festival, South by Southwest, the Vancouver International Film Festival, and many more. His new film, The Booksellers, is streaming on iTunes, Amazon, and other video-on-demand platforms in the U.S. It's also available on DVD and through virtual cinema screenings. TW was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, I Loved My Books, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. If you are, please do us a favor please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger director Michael Whitmore.